help you prepared because I'm, I'm about to be extremely profound today. A level of profoundness like maybe you've never experienced before. Here's the profound statement. We live in a divided world. Duh. <laughs> As if that wasn't obvious to everyone. So I want to talk today about God's answer to and for division. We live in a divided world. We're divided ethnically, we're divided racially, we're divided politically, we're divided culturally, and we're divided philosophically. And when I say divided, I don't mean just different. But we've become so polarized on our differences that we don't see different views as just different views. We see different views as evil, as offensive, and something for which we need to attack and stamp out. Every issue, every point of view, even every variation on a point of view is thought to be a reason to go to battle. That's a tough way to live. This is how our world has chosen to exist day after day after day. And it's sad and it's disappointing. But something from my perspective that's even more sad and more disappointing has occurred. And that the church has followed suit. The church, the people of God, have become just as divided along many of the same lines. And because of it, like the world, we've created in many of our church circles, in many of our fellowships as the body of Christ, distance. We in the body of Christ has be, have become us and them. As so many will remember when it was different, a different time. When people were nice to each other. When people got along much better with each other. And they can wax nostalgic in thinking about those times. But today, I want to go back even further than what most of us are probably thinking. I want to go back to a time when the church was divided, or at least one church in particular, waging war within, unable to stand against the evil that was in the culture because the picture in the church wasn't that different. And because of the sin inside the body of Christ that that church tolerated, it diluted and made their witness ineffective. The year is 57 AD, and the place is the city of Corinth. This was a carnal church. The church was one that Paul had founded. He spent 18 months there teaching and preaching and evangelizing and growing this church that became very special to him. He had left it and had been gone for many years. One of the places where he stopped was an emphasis to created a body of believers there. And while gone, other principles, other ideas crept in. This church was, to, you, to use a highly biblical and scholarly term, this church was a mess. And word got back to Paul. How many know that God has a way of letting things come out? 
it was vitally important. It is vitally important for us to realize that Paul's letters, for both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul was not trying to correct or unite Corinthian society. He was not trying to overthrow a government or get them in line, and he was not trying to lead some type of cultural revolution. Paul's concern was primarily and solely the church. He was trying to resolve or restore this beloved church to a place where Jesus was first and foremost in the life of the church. Because Paul believed if Jesus was first in the life of the church, the life of the government and the life of the country would take care of itself. If we get our act together, the land will get blessed. Especially in our dealings with one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and I'm going to begin reading at the top of the chapter. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no idea how long it took me to practice saying Sosthenes. We learn a lot about Paul in this church right away. We learn that from Paul's perspective, relationships matter. Paul begins by reminding them they are sanctified in Jesus Christ. They are in a process of learning and growing, but they are in Jesus. This means that even on their worst days, Jesus was not giving up on them. Aren't you glad that even on your worst days, Jesus doesn't walk away? Even when you and I get it wrong, even I, when you and I say the wrong things, even when we wind up hurting other people, Jesus doesn't walk away. You and I are being sanctified in Jesus Christ each and every day. And he tells them that they're called to be saints. Now, there was a call for ministry as an apostle and as an evangelist upon, Jesus's, upon Paul's life. But, beloved, there is a call on your life. God has called you to do something. But before God has called you to do something, he's called you to be something. And he's called you to be saints. He's called you to be his children. He's called you to be his family. There is a call on your life. And that call starts at the same place, to be his child. The call to be his people. And we share that call with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, the actual word there in the original language for sanctified literally means separated. You may not have noticed, but you and I, for the most part, are different. We think differently. We approach life differently. We experience pain differently. We process grief differently. We even love and laugh differently. 
Now, we're not different because we're better. We're not different because we're holier. We're not better because we're on some higher plane. We're different because we belong to Jesus. Before laying into this church, and believe me, Paul, as we see in this whole entire letter, before letting them know where they've gone off the rails and talking about their many deep and critical and crucial errors, that not just that they were enacting, but different lifestyles they were embracing, Paul wants to remind them that even in their flawed state, they belong to Jesus. He doesn't stop there. He wants them to know a number of things. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, continue on reading. I thank my God concerning you. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He thanks God for them. You know, I'd rather be with a bunch of imperfect Christians who are falling short of God's high standard than be with a bunch of unbelieving worldly people who are meeting their low standard each and every day. I'd rather be with God's people. Now, given that Paul is about to start saying some pretty harsh things to this church, some might question Paul's sincerity in thanking God for them. He thanks God for them. That no matter what their needs have been in life, that God has enriched them. They each have a testimony of what God has done in their lives. Don't each of you have a testimony of what God has done in your life over and over again? They each have been given a gift. No one is lacking, he says. Paul even reminds them that even in the midst of their mess, even in the midst of their crucial errors, he reminds them that God is able to take them right where they are and show them as blameless in that day of the Lord. Now, some would say he's just kind of buttering them up before he lays into them, before he lowers the boom. He's about to reveal areas of their lives where they were just falling short. Bottom line, where they were failing. But in those times when we're not meeting even our own expectations, we need to be reminded that we are not simply a collection of actions. You are not just a spiritual resume. Every so often, we each need to be reminded that God has invested much in you and me, and he is not sorry for that investment. He sees each one of us as special. He sees each one of us as gifted. We don't have to try to earn his approval. Oh, church, we don't have to try to earn his approval. We don't have to try to impress him. 
You see, the problem with having the attitude that I have to earn his approval or I have to impress him is that behind that attitude is this idea that God will not love me just the way I am. But he died for you just the way you are. And no greater love than that than would lay down his life for a friend. So when you, you get the idea or when we have the mindset that God won't love me just the way I am, there's a word for that. It's called a lie. And that's a lie right from the pit of hell. People fall into this lie, I think, because that's how almost every other relationship on this planet works. People make you earn things. Most relationships today are basically if-then clauses. I will be with you as long as this happens, or if you keep this promise, or if you stay together like this. People try to earn favor and even earn love. People even try to earn being liked. I think one thing you've learned about me is I am who I am. If you've got a problem with me, you need to talk to my father. Because Talking to me will get you nowhere. Because God loves me just the way I am. But isn't it wonderful he loves me so much he won't leave me the way I am. He wants to grow me. He wants a relationship with me. God knows our minds completely. He knows our hearts completely. He knows every action that might be hidden from everybody else. And you know what? He still loves me. And he still wants a relationship with me. Like in verse 7, that we can have a hope that we can eagerly awaiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know that's true for many of our hearts. Aren't you eagerly awaiting for that day when the clouds roll back and Jesus comes back for his church? What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. This future hope is why you and I can live today both powerfully and in peace. But pastor, it's a mess out there. Yeah, it is. But when it comes to my relationship with Jesus, there's no mess there. And we as his people need to create an environment that when we come together, there's no mess there either. Because we know that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, he's said some nice things to them. And he said some encouraging things to them. Now to the point of his letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those in Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Nice time is over. Following the words of encouragement, Paul goes after the first issue. This letter covers many issues. And the issue is division in the church. And I need to keep emphasizing that. He is not addressing division in the society. He is not addressing division in the culture. He's not addressing division among people in general. He is speaking of division in the church. Not in the world, not in our families, not in different people groups, in the church. For the next four chapters, don't worry, I'm not going to cover them all today. He will discuss this issue. Nothing subtle about the way he approaches this problem. He doesn't treat it like a possible issue. He is stating it as a fact. He's naming his sources. He's taking Chloe's household and saying, they told me this. He demonstrates intimate knowledge of the issue, not just some general statement that there's division. He points out what it is. Some of you are over here saying, I am of Paul. Others are saying, I am of Apollos. Some of are saying, I am of Cephas. And some even saying, I am not Christ. Now, he is not clear about what the specific division was that made these groups form, what the exact issues were. What, the, what was the issue that brought the conflict? Was it just an issue between different preferences of leadership? Maybe that the group that said, I am of Paul, were those who were with him when he founded the church. So they felt they had some type of superiority or seniority there because they had been there that long when the church was founded. Maybe the group that said, I am of Apollos, were because, as Acts chapter 15 points out, Apollos was this eloquent and dynamic speaker, and they liked the way he talked. And they were newcomers who liked his exciting new voice. Maybe the group that said, I am of Cephas, were those Jewish believers who had been previously exiled from the Roman Empire by Claudius Caesar. And now that Claudius Caesar had died, they were coming back, and they were tied to the old Jewish traditions, even though they had embraced Messiah in Jesus. Maybe the group that was of Christ were those who were trying to be peacemakers, or those who were saying, you know, I'm not of any person, I'm super spiritual, I'm of Jesus. The words used for division and contention here literally translate strife that makes one ready for battle. That's not something that should be said in his house. These were not small squabbles. Now, what's interesting to me, and I got to give Paul his, uh, his props here. The human tendency is when you're addressing something like this would be to at least in some way, shape, or form favor the group that's loyal to you. And he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't say, you need to stop this division. What you need to do is all be, I am of Paul. He doesn't say that. He basically tells them all that he doesn't favor anyone just because you're loyal to him. If your actions are causing disunity, they're not of Christ. He makes it clear, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? He could have gone on to say, were you baptized in Apollos' name? Or were you baptized in Cephas' name? No, he just focuses on his own name. And they were told in verse 10 that they needed to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I need to unpack that. Because immediately people are going to think, okay, the church means you can't have a, a different voice and you can't think differently. I've shared this before. My dad always said to us growing up, if, everybody, if two people on any, anything in life, if two people are joined in a relationship, and on every point they think alike, on every point they speak alike, on every point they act alike, one of them is not necessary. That's what my dad said. That people thinking alike and speak, uh, um, people thinking differently and speaking differently was not adverse to a relationship. He wasn't asking them to disregard differences. He was calling for unity, not unanimity, but unity, and to realize how precious the body of Christ really is, how precious it is to come together as God's people. So many, of, so many Christians today have turned away from the house of God. So many Christians today have said, I don't need to get together with God's people. First and foremost, that principle is taught nowhere in the Bible. The Bible is clear to not forsake, to not go against, to not avoid the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the day approaching. And if anybody has eyes open, we see the day approaching. But apart from that comment, and it's not that Jesus isn't a fulfillment in our lives just the way he is. But the way in which God set things up, you were not created, you were not saved to function by yourself. So many Christians I've heard over the years say, all I need is Jesus and me. I want to say, find that in the Bible. Because you're not going to. Yes, you're not saved by coming to church. You're not getting into heaven by your church attendance. You're not going to be able to stand before Jesus one day and pull out a tithe record. That's not how salvation works. But we need one another. And the unity that we experience and create together is a powerful, powerful uh, tool and weapon against the enemy. This was a call to oneness in spirit and a spirit that welcomes the spirit of other believers, even when that spirit has different voices. Paul doesn't take time to assess the details of each group's deeper beliefs or practices to try and, with some type of laser scalpel, address what parts of what they were doing were getting in the way of unity. For him, if the end result was division, 
there's a problem, and a problem that needs to be addressed. His bottom line, and that's got to be the bottom line for us, the bottom line for Christians has to be the cross. It has to be the cross. That's our bottom line. First Corinthians chapter 1, I pick it up again in verse number 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring nothing to the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made the foolishness? Has God not made foolishness the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Church, for us as Christians, for us as the body of Christ, the center of our unity is the cross. It's the cross. A little over a week ago, I stood at the St. James Fire Department with other ministers from this community as we commemorated 9-11 and its 20th anniversary. And I got to meet three other ministers from this community I didn't know before. I stood with them gladly as brothers. And since now that I know them, at least in a casual way, ever since then, I've been praying for Pastor Miguel, who pastors the Spanish church right down the road from us. I've been praying for Pastor Ian, who pastors the Episcopal Church here in St. James, and for Father Tom, who's over at the Catholic Church here in St. James, because they are my brothers. They are not my enemies. They are not my competitors. They are my brothers. And that is what we need to base on, because we are brothers and sisters because of the cross. Now, there are many, many reasons why I am not Episcopal today. There are many biblical reasons why I'm not many other different parts of the body of Christ today. And there are probably many obvious reasons why I'm not a Roman Catholic priest today. But they're my family. Are there differences? Absolutely. Are there things I can embrace? Absolutely. But when we come together, I let them know I'm praying for them. I'm praying that their churches grow. I'm praying that the word of God is preached and that lives are changed. I let them know. I even spoke with Pastor Miguel, and I mentioned to him that every so often, different people will leave just a bag of groceries on our doorstep here at the church, and I'll come and I'll see this bag of food. He has a thriving food pantry that gives out food seven days a week. So he and I arranged, I'm not going to be dropping off food with him. Now, some would say, but then people who get the food from their church are going to connect the the blessing with them, and they'll go to that church. That's okay with me. 
because they're going to a church. I know Pastor Miguel now. He has a heart for Jesus. That's what, they're not my competitors. We need to have unity. And the cross is the center. Paul said the cross is power, the power of God. In quoting Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cross is our wisdom. The world looks at the cross and it shakes its head. It doesn't make sense to them. How can the cross be your salvation? I had someone years ago on a job tell me the cross doesn't make sense to them. That for them, holding a cross on a chain around your neck is like holding an electric chair around your neck. Because they saw the cross as a place of execution. But the Bible says the cross is the power of God because God defeated it. God came above it. And in that place where he was executed, he died for your sins and for mine. And we need to be reminded of that each and every day. Some look at the cross as a place of defeat. That Jesus was this great teacher. He performed many miracles. And then he lost. No, he didn't lose. You and I were losers with no hope. And he paid a debt that you and I never, ever could. Some look at the cross as a place of shame, which is how most Jews of that time did. Because the Old Testament was clear about the shame associated with someone hanging on a tree. But in hanging on that tree, in hanging on that cross, Jesus took the shame that you and I deserved because of our sinful lives and sinful natures. It doesn't make sense to them. But to us, it is the power of God. To us, it makes perfect sense. To us, it makes us grateful. Others look at the cross and shake their heads. I look at the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Others look at the cross and say, he lost. I look at the cross and say, victory in Jesus. Others look at the cross and say, that's a place of shame. Yeah, it's a place of shame. It was my shame. The shame of my life that got taken away. But he died on that cross. Yeah, but he didn't stay dead. Finish the story. Three days later, he got up again. That is the wisdom of the Christian faith. And to the world, it's foolishness. So no doubt that they have issues of unity. No doubt that they have issues of finding harmony. Now, we're all different. I'm sure all of us think a little differently. I'm sure when the holidays come, many of you make your spaghetti sauce just a little differently. Gravy sauce, whatever. <laughs> I am not going there. <laughs> Because whether it's gravy or sauce, I enjoy it all. There are some who spend hours putting that gravy together. And there are others who reach for a jar. We're not going to condemn anybody here. Even though right now in your mind you are. 
but that's not going to divide the people who are saved by the cross. That's not going to separate us because we see that as foolishness. But I understand that the world is divided. That can't happen in God's house. That can't happen among God's people. I will do everything in my power to support the other churches in this community. Where they stand with the cross, they can count on me as an ally. Now, where they individually or where their organizations as a whole begin to separate themselves, I'm going to stand against that. There are legitimate places for separation. But preferences in speaking style, preferences in, I like the music here as opposed to the music there. You know, it's too loud over here. I like it softer over here. This pastor preaches a message in a more dynamic style, and this one puts me to sleep. I have to wonder if the message that the pastor is preaching is the gospel, if maybe you should get right with God before you come into his presence and fall asleep. Because we need the gospel, not a style. We need the word of the Lord, not somebody that's particularly eloquent. I've shared my testimony. Before God got a hold of me, eloquence was something you would never associate with me. It is the power of the cross that allows me to get up every Sunday and preach my heart, which is the gospel, boldly and without compromise. Paul made it clear, and Paul made it simple. We preach Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul's going to deal with a lot of other things in this church that are, may seem a whole lot worse than what he opened with. There was sin in that church, and they were tolerating it. They were embracing it. They were overlooking it. Not that there was sin in the world, and they were overlooking it. There was sin in the house, and they were overlooking it. So we'll get to that. But for today, I am not of Paul. I am not of Apollos. I am not of Cephas. I am of Christ crucified. I am of him and him alone. And if that's your heart, then we're family. We come together as family. Whether you attend this church regularly or I see you every so often at a special gathering in the community. I let those men know we're family. Sadly, sometimes we all behave like family in the way we talk to one another and deal with one another, but we're still one in Jesus. Stand with me, please.